What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. This weekend, Argentines voted out their reformist president. Instead, they chose candidates who will return to protectionist big-state Peronism, a movement that has dominated the country's post-war politics and decimated its economy. And in America, lots of kids have to start school early, really early. But there's a growing push to give them more time in bed. Research suggests that later starts result in better grades, an economic boost, even fewer deaths on the roads. But first... The Islamic State leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is dead. On Saturday, an American Special Forces team moved on a compound in northern Syria, where he was hiding. The United States has been searching for Baghdadi for many years. Capturing or killing Baghdadi has been the top national security priority of my administration. President Donald Trump announced details of the raid on Sunday morning. The military was able to confirm Mr. Baghdadi's identity through DNA testing. His death is a blow to the scattered remnants of Islamic State. The group killed and enslaved tens of thousands of people and ruled brutally over millions more in its quest to form a caliphate, according to a savage interpretation of Islam. His death is certainly a symbolic blow to the group. He was a very aspirational figurehead. Greg Karlstrom is our Middle East correspondent. Uh, it was really Baghdadi who pioneered this idea of uh, establishing a, a so-called caliphate that spanned borders uh, and was able to attract tens of thousands of followers from across the world to come and join the group. So uh, losing him is a blow in that sense. And of course, it comes at a time when Islamic State is already quite weak. Uh, it's lost most of the territory that it seized after 2014. It's been struggling uh, to attract followers. It's lost much of the influence that it had a few years ago. And what do we know about how Mr. Baghdadi died? What we know is that American troops uh, swooped into Idlib on eight helicopters and burst into a compound where uh, Baghdadi and his family and his followers were hiding. He was then, according to American officials, chased into a tunnel which had no exit uh, and detonated a suicide vest, killing him and killing three of his small children who he had dragged along with him. You say that this was an unexpected place to, to, to find him and that it was a uh, hostile territory. How did, how did the Americans work this, this operation out? Well, everyone in the Middle East seems to be taking credit for helping with this operation. Turkey says it played a role. The Syrian Kurds say they helped. Uh, as a Syrian friend of mine joked last night, uh, al-Qaeda is going to come out at some point and claim responsibility for helping. What seems to be the case is that both the Syrian Kurds and Iraq contributed intelligence that helped the CIA track Baghdadi to uh, Idlib province. 
Trump in his press conference thanked uh, both Russia and Turkey for their role, but their role seems to have been mostly what the American military calls deconfliction. Uh, these are areas where Russia and Turkey are both very active, more active uh, since Trump ordered the withdrawal of American troops from northeast Syria earlier this month. And so uh, the Americans before going in would have had to coordinate with the Russian and Turkish armies to make sure that their helicopters weren't shot at. But uh, the bulk of the intelligence seems to have come from the Syrian Kurds and from Iraq. Nonetheless, the fact that all of these countries were involved in some way uh, points to the need for diplomacy, points to the need for uh, relationships in the region, uh, relationships that, of course, have been damaged, particularly in the case of the Syrian Kurds, uh, since Trump ordered a withdrawal from northeast Syria. And, and what would you say is, is Mr. Baghdadi's legacy? How did he, how did he change the, the state of play in the Middle East? It's a terrible legacy, uh, and his death will be mourned by almost no one in the region. Uh, he was born in near the city of Samarra in Iraq. He styled himself as a religious scholar, although most actual religious scholars would say his credentials were quite unimpressive. Uh, we don't know a whole lot about his early years, but the road to Islamic State, so to speak, began after the American invasion of Iraq in 2003. Uh, Baghdadi was arrested the following year in a roundup of militants, uh, and he was held for a time at Camp Bukha, an American detention camp in Iraq. Uh, he wasn't held for very long. He was seen as being sort of a low-level street thug, someone not worthy of holding, which of course turned out to be a catastrophic mistake in hindsight. By 2010, he had been named the leader of the Islamic State in Iraq, which would then, amidst the chaos of the Syrian civil war, go on to seize a large swath of territory in both Syria and Iraq and rebrand itself simply as Islamic State. We heard from Trump yesterday a focus on the American victims of Islamic State, which is perhaps understandable. He's the American president, but we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that the overwhelming majority of the victims of this group were millions of Syrians and Iraqis who had to endure not only years of brutal rule by Islamic State, but also uh, an extremely bloody campaign to retake cities and towns the group had captured. And do you think Islamic State would have got to its position of, of prominence and, and some power without his leadership, or was he more of just a, a figurehead? He wasn't the first leader of Islamic State or of the groups that preceded Islamic State, but he was the first leader who had such an ambitious vision for what the group should become. Osama bin Laden, the, the former leader of al-Qaeda, uh, he believed this was not the right time to try and found a caliphate and seize territory. He believed in fighting uh, sort of a long war against what he considered to be apostate Muslim governments and thought that eventually he would rally enough Muslims to his cause that uh, he would be able to, or a successor would be able to, to sort of set up a caliphate. Uh, it was Baghdadi who, who accelerated that idea, who said, in fact... Uh, this is the time to seize a chunk of territory in Syria and Iraq, to declare the borders null, to uh, establish uh, satellite franchises in other countries. And so while Islamic State existed before him, would have existed without him, uh, it would have existed in a different way, I think, without his particular ideology. And, and what does that region look like now that he's gone? Is, is this... Is it a happier time without him? Uh, happy times are in short supply in the Middle East these days, unfortunately. Uh, watching Trump speak yesterday, I thought back to uh, another press conference in May of 2011 uh, when Barack Obama announced that Osama bin Laden had been killed in a raid in Pakistan. And this was uh, framed as a victory in the so-called war on terror, which at that point had been going on for a decade. But of course, 
three short years after that, we saw the atrocities of Islamic State, which surpassed anything Al-Qaeda did. Uh, And so I think one thing we've learned over the past decade and a half is that uh, eliminating leaders of these groups does not actually eliminate these groups. Uh, Islamic State, you can draw a line back to the American invasion of Iraq in 2003, which created space for its predecessors, and then, of course, to the chaos that followed the Syrian civil war. Uh, Those conditions, in a sense, still exist. We've seen uh, weeks of anti-government protests in Iraq against a corrupt and ineffective government, Of course, in Syria, Bashar al-Assad has survived the civil war. He now controls most of his territory again. So the the conditions, the poor governance, the poverty, the marginalization, the frustration, uh, all of the things that allowed these groups to take root in the first place, they still exist. And as long as those conditions exist, it doesn't matter how many of these leaders you kill, there will be more to take their place. Thank you very much for your time, Greg. Of course. Thank you. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise. Where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem. Where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org economist. Populism is back in Argentina. Yesterday's election was a victory for Alberto Fernandez and his better-known running mate, firebrand former president Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner. The pair won by just over seven points, beating the pro-business incumbent Mauricio Macri. He took office four years ago with grand plans to reshape Argentina but he lost popularity due to the country's continuing economic woes. On one level, this election was about the issue of change and whether after decades of decline, Argentina could embrace the change that President Mauricio Macri had been trying to bring the country ever since he came to power in 2015. David Smith is our Argentina correspondent, based in Buenos Aires. But in the end, the election was really about an economy in serious crisis with serious inflation, rising unemployment, and recession. The result is a return to power for the Peronist movement of Mr. Fernandez and Ms. Fernandez de Kirchner. The Peronist movement has run Argentina for more than half the time since the end of the Second World War. Peronism, very much born out of World War II and Peron's vision using Mussolini in Italy, the fascist dictator, very much a national socialism alliance of the unions and the lower working class, the underclass, in a nationalist context, to forge a coalition that embraces elements of both right and left. And so what do you expect from Mr. Fernandez's government? Will it be, therefore, a a radical departure from what we've seen under Mr. Macri? Well, I think they face, at the very outset, an economic crisis that will dominate policy. But I think we can expect, in traditional parentist terms, a return to protectionism economically, interventionism, a large public sector, a serious public deficit, 
although all of that has to be tempered on the economic front by the reality of very large debt now, much of it with the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, and then creditors, which will surely temper what the new government can do. But I think in broad terms, we're looking at a left-of-centre populist government that will be telling the nation at large that its role is to look after the poor and to make sure that the resources of the country are focused on their needs through welfare programmes and through populist measures designed, as is Peronist custom, to keep them in power. I often think of Peronism not so much as a political party, but a movement dedicated to the preservation of its own power. Given that kind of economy and prospect, how have the markets reacted to the result, or, or was it already priced in? Well, the markets clearly are going to find this worrying. And so we've seen in the days leading up to this vote, devaluation of the peso, which we can expect to accelerate. Should be said, however, that immediately Mauricio Macri, the current president, in conceding defeat, has invited Alberto Fernandez, the new president-elect, to meet and to work together on transition measures, one of which will be a new, serious, strict control on the amount of foreign currency that Argentines can buy. And this is designed to stop capital flight, money leaving the country, and to prevent, if possible, a further devaluation of the peso, which then in turn becomes a trigger for higher inflation. And inflation, I would judge, was the biggest single issue in this election. We're well over 50% inflation at the moment. And why do you think it is that that Mr. Macri lost? In, In the view of Argentines, has he made mistakes or do you think he was just dealt a difficult hand? Well, it's a combination of both, I think, Jason. He was undoubtedly dealt a difficult hand by his predecessor, who's now going to be Vice President Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, in terms of inflation back then in 2015, in terms of the public deficit, and in terms of of a, a state sector which was bloated. However, Macri has failed to deliver much of the reform agenda that he came to power saying that he would implement. And his message consistently was that It would take him time. Remember, after decades of decline, it was never going to happen that quickly. But on the other hand, major, major errors were made along the way. And the one that I think everybody can focus on is at the end of 2017, when Macri had had a pretty successful midterm election that year. His government was saying that going into 2018, the inflation rate would be 15%. Well, at the end of 2018, it turned out to be 47%. And you mentioned that period of decline, in in fact, in part under uh, Ms. Kirchner, who will now be vice president. How much influence do you think she will have in, in the new government? Probably the key variable going forward is who will actually be in charge of this government Ms. Fernandez de Kirchner was in a position where she was going to be the candidate for the Peronist movement. And back in May, she surprised everyone by deciding that she would uh, make herself vice president and select Alberto Fernandez, a party operative, all his life. And it turned out to be a very smart move. However, it does raise the question, who's really in power here? And I think we have to watch this play out. You know, I was hearing, as these results came in, a wise commentator remarking how the battle within the Peronist Party will now be the dominant factor in terms of dealing, for example, with this economic crisis that the country has. 
And so, all told, where where do you see things heading? If even things went well, it would probably not be economically wise, and there might be party infighting. I mean, where where do you see Argentina heading from here on out? Well, I think in the short term, the issue is going to be how do the markets react? Are we going to see further devaluation? Are we going to see further loss of confidence because of the return of the Peronists? Or are we going to see before the formal handover of power in December, in a sense, a measure of national unity to deal with the economic issues confronting Argentina. The one thing I'd urge us to recognise, however, is is that this vote, quite a bit closer than we thought it was going to be, we have watched Macri and his change coalition emerge, be in power, for too long Argentina, and its decline has been the result of really only one lead party being in power. And the coalition that has lost power will nevertheless now be going into opposition with some strength, with its voice very clearly heard by the country. You know, I don't think we should underestimate that in the past few weeks, Macri and the presidency have been able to mobilise hundreds of thousands of people to go out on the streets in a way that normally only the Peronists have ever done in this country to show that they want change that they want the country to look itself in the mirror and confront its problems. So I don't think it's all doom and gloom, even though the economic crisis will be dominating the headlines for the next few weeks, certainly, if not months. David, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jason. people are still hunched over their morning bowl of cornflakes, others have already started their working day, or even are finishing first period. Kids start school pretty early in America. It varies from state to state, but the earliest any state starts at is in Mississippi, where they start at 7.48. Only in Alaska do schools start after half past eight. Earlier this month, Gavin Newsom, California's governor, signed legislation which sets a limit on start times. The limit is 8.30 for high schoolers, 8 o'clock for middle schoolers, and altogether 2.7 million schoolchildren in California will be affected by the change. By which you mean they'll get to sleep in a little bit. Exactly. Why does everyone think that would be good for them? Puberty shifts or seems to shift circadian rhythms, which mean that adolescents are more alert in the afternoon and they need more sleep in the morning. A research review by some epidemiologists at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention find that starting school a bit later tends to correspond with better attendance, less tardiness, less falling asleep in class, better grades, and even fewer crashes involving kids driving themselves to school. The Rand Corporation guesses that moving to half-past eight start across the country would boost the American economy by more than $80 billion within a decade. So the, the research seems to all point in the same direction, which is we should be doing more of this. Why aren't the Americans doing more of this? So some schools and some school districts across the country are starting to move in this direction, are moving their starting times back. But there tends to be opposition from a number of places. Part of it is because some parents kind of think this worked well for me, I went, had to get up early for school and that helped me get a job later in life and had the kind of discipline you need to do that. Teaching unions are also strongly opposed to the move. 
It puts financial burdens on the schools that have to adjust for new hours. So that includes stuff like changing bus timetables or building new floodlights for after-school sport because they don't have to play in the dark. And there's also a burden on parents who work as labourers or in the service industry and can't change their working hours very easily. And indeed, last year, the previous Californian governor vetoed legislation saying the decision should be left to school districts. And so what's your take on that view, that it, uh, that the broader public health question should be divided up among school districts? I think it's a pretty weak argument. I think there's good evidence that moving to a later start is beneficial for children. And I think it's also fairly normal for states to set a kind of minimum health and safety standard for a wide range of services, including education. So I, I don't see this as a kind of example of state overreach. And so with the trend line that we're on, you think that one day in not too long, American kids will, on average, be going to school after half eight? It's hard to say for sure, but I think the fact that California, the most popular state in the country, has now moved in this direction creates a kind of pretty strong precedent and will help campaigners who are looking to move it back across the country. Hamish, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.